Now let's turn to our text today, Exodus 15, starting at verse 22, second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. Does anybody have a blue Bible? Can you tell me what page that's on? 56, if you have a blue Bible. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water, because it was Marah. Uh, that is why the place is called Marah, because the water was Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out, to the Lord. God help us. I mean, what a place of desperation. In fact, I can't help but remember when I led uh, my first group, group to the Sinai and we got halfway up the mountain, no, all the way up the mountain, having a great time. And I just said, oh, by the way, how much water do we have? And everybody said, well, my water bottle's empty. My water bottle's empty. I got a third of a water bottle. I'm telling you, I panicked, literally. Uh, you'll, you'll die of thirst so fast in this place with no water. Three days with no water. Moses cried out to the Lord in desperation. The Lord showed him a piece of wood. Interesting how Moses knows what to do with the wood. He threw the wood into the water, and the water beca- became fit to drink. Then the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, here's the test. If you listen carefully to the Lord your God, you do what is right in his eyes and you pay attention to his commands and you keep his decrees. I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians. I am Yahweh who heals you. And then they came to Elim where there were 12 springs and seven palm trees, and they camped there uh, near the water. Amazing. Okay, and we're also going to look at chapter 16 as well today, but you may be seated. So here's where we are in the story. Uh, God gets Israel out of Egypt in a very dramatic fashion. He makes a way when there was no way. In fact, this is seen as Israel's rebirth. The, the passing through the waters is a picture of Israel passing through the birth canal. She's being born again. She's given new life. And then we come to our text today, verse 22, and it says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. Now we can just kind of gloss over those words this morning, and almost, they mean almost nothing to us. I'm trying to think of what an equivalent of, of, of what this would be for us. I think it would be the equivalent of each of us packing a suitcase and leaving everything we know. Think about that. Could you do that? Could you fill up a suitcase and leave everything behind? That's what's going on here. And I want us to consider, first of all, what they are leaving, because they're leaving Egypt. 
And you have to remember that Egypt is a lot of things to them. First of all, it's home for 400 years. That's twice as long almost as what we've been a country. That's been home to them. They're leaving the security of the known. They're leaving the security of being under the umbrella of a superpower. They're leaving prosperity. Yes, you can say they're slaves, but they're really still leaving, even though they've been unfairly treated, this comfortable middle-class existence. They're leaving it. And they're leaving it for what? The wilderness. Now, I'll show you what this looks like to them. Uh, If I could have PowerPoint of Goshen. It's the slide with the fertile and the desert. Okay. Fertile. Hmm, I wonder what's over that hill. Next one. You can't see the base. The base is just fertile as can be. Boom, desert. I mean, literally, it goes from fertile, 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 step, desert, for hundreds of miles. Next one. That's how fertile it is when you're down right in that Goshen area. Topsoil is 100 feet deep right there. Next one. Got that spectacular one that I want. It's all right. Um, He'll probably get it when we keep going here. Oh, not that one, but that's okay. Um, Save that one. Could you do this? Now, I've, I've led groups to this area, and honestly, the first time when I went there myself, my first thought was stepping into the desert was not so much even how could anyone travel here, but let alone how could, how, how could anyone live here, survive here? In fact, I'm just going to, oh, isn't that spectacular? You see the contrast? Egypt, desert. Take your suitcase, and that's all you get. And we're going to leave this, and we're going to go into that. Amazing. Um, I want us to forget the fact, too, that it's 120 degrees. Um, It's just a barren, desolate place. The verb, when it says in verse 22 that Moses led them there, it has the connotation that he drove them there. (laughs) He had to drive them. They don't want to leave this. Do you know that it says the same thing in Mark's gospel? The Spirit drove, drove Jesus into the wilderness. The wilderness has this aspect of terror to it. And it's not just the heat, but it's a place where you feel naked because you're stripped of all your creaturely comforts, of all your props, all the things that provide a sense of security and comfort. It's a place where you feel vulnerable. It's, It's a place where you're perpetually thirsty. It's a place where you feel your need at the deepest level where you come face to face with your weakness. 
And see, I think all of us today know that the desert is more than just a place on the map, but the desert are those seasons of life when, when life is tough, when, when our props are taken away, when we're laid bare, when we don't know how we're going to make it through the next week, let alone the next day. It's like, how am I even going to take the next step? And some of you right now are in the desert emotionally, some of you are in the desert relationally, and some of you right now are in the desert spiritually. You're at the end of yourself, and you don't know where you're going to get the resources to make it through the next week. Now here's what we need to see. While verse 22 says, and Moses led them or drove them, Moses is just the go-between. Can someone look up Psalm 7720? In fact, I'm going to hand out some verses right now. Who wants that one? Thank you. Can someone look up Exodus 13, verses 21 and 22? Who wants that one? That's Exodus 13, 21 and 22. Who wants Exodus 14, 19 and 20? Thank you. And I have one more. Who wants Matthew 7, 21 through 23? Thank you, Perry. Okay. Who has uh, Psalm 77, verse 20? Stand up and give us this. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Okay. Who's leading the people of God? He's doing it through the hand of Moses and Aaron, but it's God. Deuteronomy 8, the text we we just studied. God says, I led you in the desert these 40 years. In fact, this has been God's plan all along. Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may worship me. Where? In the desert. Here's the question we have to ask. Why the desert? Why not just take them from Egypt to promised land? Well, I'll start with this. Desert in the Bible, does anybody know who it's home to? The desert is a place where people can survive. In fact, it's the home to who? Bedouins. Shepherds. Let me just show you some of those uh, PowerPoints of um, the shepherd and the sheep. That's desert. This is where the shepherd and, and, the, and the sheep live. Uh, give me the next one. Look at that. <laughs> I know what you're wondering. Like, what do they eat? Are those rock-eating sheep? No, they're not. Uh, believe it or not, there are just little tufts of grass that grow up, and all day long, the, the shepherd uh, walks, the sheep follow, and they get just enough to eat every day. Moses just spent 40 years in that desert shepherding sheep. Now he's going to spend the next 40 years in the desert shepherding who? God's flock. Now the word in in Hebrew for wilderness actually has many nuanced meanings that I think are significant. The, The word literally in Hebrew is midbar. And it's written DBR. The mi before it is kind of like a preposition. The DBR, it's Dalit Beit Resh. Uh, it, it literally means place of the word. 
And here's what you need to know about Hebrew. Hebrew, when written, has no vowels. So all you see are the consonants. And because Hebrew is a poor language, I mean, it has one-tenth of the vocabulary as English, what that means then is that one word can mean many things. And so DBR is the root word, and I don't know if you have this PowerPoint, it's the root for, PowerPoint's not showing it, so I can surprise you. Um, It's the root word for to speak. It's the root word for word. And of course it means desert. So the Jewish people understand this, that desert is the place, of course, where God speaks. It's the place where where God's people hear God's voice. It's the place where God gives his word. I love not just Exodus, because we're going to find out that this is the place where God speaks. This is the place where he's going to give his word. But then when you even get to the New Testament, and Luke opens up with this who's who of all the greats of that day, the emperors, the rulers, and all this, he says, but the word of God came to John in the desert. The Debar of God came to John in the Midbar. I'll add one more. Does anybody have the name Deborah? No one has the name Deborah here this morning. Right here, front row. Deborah, do you know what your name name means? Industrious B. I like that, how they put the industrious before that. Um, That's what Bs are. They're industrious. DBR, Deborah, means honeybee. Now you're asking, well, what, why would honeybee and word share the same root? Well, how often does the word say that your word is like honey? Same picture. I'll add one more. When Solomon builds a temple, you can read about this in 1 Kings 6 and 7. You're not going to see this because you probably don't know the Hebrew. But when it's describing the Holy of Holies, for some reason, when you get to this text, it uses a unique word for the Holy of Holies. It's the word debir. Again, it's that root, D-B-R. And so then you have to ask, well, why would the text use this word? Well, because the Holy of Holies is the place where God speaks. It's the place where God's word dwells. And now apply this to the desert, desert, D-B-R, and Holy of Holies, D-B-R, share the same root. So within the word itself, there's this strong connection between holy of holies and desert. And see, this fits the picture of why God wants to lead his people to the desert. He wants to speak to them. He wants to give to them his word. He wants to bring them into his holy of holies. See, God loves desert. This is the land, God says, where I led you. In fact, I love how this is put in Deuteronomy 8. When you look at it really closely, God says, I led you in the desert. Not just he led them to the desert, but he said, I led you in the desert. In fact, that word for lead there in Deuteronomy 8 verse 2 is the word walk. In other words, what God is saying is this. I not only walked you to the desert, but I walked with you in the desert. 
He's the shepherd. And I don't know what you see if you'd close your eyes and just imagine that truth. God walking his people to the desert. God walking his people in the desert. I know, I know what I see. Um, and I'll tell you why I see what I see. Who has Exodus 13, 21, and 22? Could you stand and read this? So leaving Egypt, this cloud shows up. Now what do you picture? Well, see, this is why I I, I just wish we would sometimes have more literal translations because it doesn't say that in the Hebrew, it says literally this cloud didn't just go before them. It it walked before them. It's a walking cloud. (laughs) It's a walking pillar of fire. Who has Exodus 14, 19, and 20? Okay, so you have the angel of the Lord. It doesn't say literally withdrew in the Hebrew. It says, and it walked. It's in front of him, now it walks behind him. Keep going. Same thing, pillar of fire. It didn't just move, it walked. Now you take this a little bit further in Exodus 24, and it says uh, that Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders went up the mountain, and it says they saw God. Now, what do you mean they saw God? And it specifically says they saw God's feet. And they saw God's hands. See, I understand that in light of our New Testament, like John 1 verse 18, where it says, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and has made himself known. When God makes himself known, when he shows his face, when he shows his hands, when he shows its feet, it's always through the Son. That's why Paul says the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is in the face of Christ. And so the cloud and the fire kind of describes what they see. It's a cloud by day, it's a fire by night, but what it doesn't describe is what's in the cloud except his feet. And see, for anyone who thinks that Israel just wandered aimlessly for 40 years in this desert, you're wrong. They're not wandering aimlessly. They have a shepherd. Who's shepherding them? Next, Psalm 78, 52. I didn't assign that, so let me just quickly find that and read that, this. This is where I get like, holy cow, my eyes are so bad. It says he brought his people, speaking of God, he brought his people out like a flock and he led them like sheep through the desert. And that's why when you come to the New Testament, John 10, where it talks about Jesus saying he's the good shepherd, 
this isn't just all of a sudden some new thought that Jesus is throwing on them because he's been the good shepherd to Israel as he's led his flock out of Egypt and then as he led his flock through the parted waters of the Red Sea and then how he led his flock for 40 years in the wilderness. They did not wander aimlessly in the desert. They had a shepherd, a good shepherd. And you're like, why are you spending so much time time talking about this, because this is a game changer for me. Because I know in a moment, just a moment, I can get a phone call today about something happening to my son or my daughter. I can get a phone call about something happening to a loved one. I can be in a desert like that. And so can you. And to know that when we're in our deserts, we have a shepherd, a shepherd who is shepherding us, who is leading us, who's guiding us. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, said David. He leads me beside the quiet waters. That's our text today. Do you know your shepherd? Can you say Psalm 23? That's what Israel's coming to know, that they have a shepherd. And you only come to know the shepherd in the land of the shepherd, not in Egypt. Desert. Okay, so Israel now is leaving the Red Sea, going in the desert. It's going to be a 40-day, even though they're going to be in the desert for 40 years, but they first have a 40-day journey from the shores of the Reed Sea to Mount Sinai. During these 40 days, there are going to be three tests. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you. We're going to look at two of the tests this morning. The first test is they get three days into the wilderness with their suitcase, and they're complaining. Look at 15, verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea. They went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Now I read a lot of Christian commentaries on this passage this week and they all talk about Israel as a bunch of class A whiners and complainers. Like, what's wrong with these people? And in one sense, I hear this because, I mean, just think about everything that they've witnessed from the hand of God, the ten plagues. Even just three days prior to this text, the parting of the Red Sea, the drowning of the Egyptian army. Now they have the audacity to complain, we need water. but I want to remind you right now what they're they're complaining about. They're not complaining about not having a home with their comfortable bed and their chariot parked in the garage. They're not complaining about that. They're not complaining about snakes. They're not complaining about scorpions. They're not even complaining about how hot it is. They are complaining about not having their most basic need. To survive, we need water. So they come to Mara, 
And I can just imagine this. They see this water. And you have to understand, there's water that flows in the, in the desert. You have to find it, but it's there. And I can just see them literally like finding it and, and, and splashing around in it and drinking and dancing. And then all of a sudden they drink it. And it's like, oh my goodness, we can't drink this. It would literally be like you're dying of thirst and someone gave you a glass of water and you drank it and all of a sudden it's salt water. That's like the worst dirty trick in the world. So God says, all right, Moses, punish these people. I'm sick of their complaints. No, he doesn't say that. He's like, Moses, take that wood and throw it in the water. And I can see Moses kind of saying, you mean my staff, right? No, 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 Moses, not the staff, because you and that staff are getting a little bit too comfortable these days, and you're starting to think it's a magic wand, so not the staff this time. But that tree, take that tree and throw it in the water. Think about it. A tree in Tumara, and the water becomes sweet. A tree into chaos, bringing waters of shalom. Do you see the picture? It's kind of like Jonah, isn't it? Like, throw me into the storm. And Jonah gets thrown in, shalom. Throw the tree into Mara. And it will bring shalom, waters of, still waters, waters of peace. See, God wants us to see these pictures so that when we get to the New Testament, they start to make a lot of sense. So they're in the desert, the land of the shepherd. They're being led by the good shepherd. And don't you just love how the good shepherd leads them beside quiet waters? Look at verse 25. Not only does he turn uh, that water into probably just sweet-tasting, drinkable water, I mean, honestly, I, I, I love this part in our trip when I take people into the desert for three days and at the end of the third day, uh, we do a hard, miserable hike where people are saying, why didn't you leave? Why did, weren't there enough graves in Egypt for, for us to die there? And I love it because I'm taking them to a spring. And it's pure joy. I can see this. And God's not done. It's like, hey, how about if I take you to an oasis where each tribe can even have their their own spring? He is the good shepherd. And he will shepherd his sheep. Now, the second test grows out of their second complaint. Look at chapter 16. We didn't read this, but look at verse 2. And this is actually 30 days later in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. They're, they're whining, they're complaining again. The Israelites said to them, here it is, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. I don't know what you think of that. But now we're starting to get into the heart of the Israelites. See, it's one thing for God to get his people out of Egypt. I mean, that's really the easy part. But it's a whole other thing to get Egypt out of his people. 
And here they are, already 30 days into this thing, almost wishing they were dead. When I hear that, I say, this is the language of addiction. Because they remember Egypt to be something good. And see, this is still a sign that they're still slaves. They're free from Egypt, but in their minds, they're still slaves. And God has to get this slavery out of them. Where they're just missing those pots of meat and food, where their appetites can be assuaged. That's Egypt. Let me ask you, do you live in Egypt? And are you addicted to Egypt? I mean, any time we, we, we think we absolutely must have something or we can't live without something or, or that we no longer want to live because we've lost it, that's a sign of addiction. And just think about all the things that we think we need today in order to be happy. Think about the complete level of discontentment today. I mean, our hearts are like idol factories, as John Calvin said. We, we can make idols out of anything and everything, and if we're honest, we're addicts. We're addicts to our comfort. We're addicts to pain-free li- living. We're, we're addicts to leisure. We're addicts to pleasure. We're addicts to our screens. And the big thing is we've lost our capacity to suffer. We've lost the capacity to live with just a suitcase. I'm not just talking people out there. I'm talking Christians. I'm I'm including myself in this. So many of us are still slaves to Egypt. Because our heart attachments are to the things of this world, the things that we live for, the things that we value, the things that we talk about, the things that we spend our time trying to attain or to accomplish or possess. It has Egypt labeled all over it. This is why God loves desert. Because desert is God's tool. To take things away. Things that we just are clutching and we have to have it. <laughs> Desert. It's the only thing that God can use to get us to let go of our comforts, our pleasures, our props, all the things that we think that make us in control of life. God just applies desert to that. God says, remember how I led you in, these, in the desert these 40 years to humble you. See, that's what the desert does. It, it humbles us. It brings us face to face with our weakness, our vulnerabilities. It's the place where we feel utterly incapable, where we know that we're not in charge and we can't control our lives. And see, God loves humility. And maybe I'm just speaking for myself right now, but we are not instinctively humble people. Humility needs to be pushed into us. And the way God pushes humility into us, he leads us into the desert. God says, remember how I led you in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you. 
God's the one who tests us. And see, we can look at our circumstances a lot and, and just say that the world caused that or situations caused that. And, and, and I agree in part, but God's over all of that yet. God tests us. And Israel right now is being tested by God. And, and, and ask yourself, what's the test? Well, he says it in Deuteronomy 8. He said, I had to humble you and I had to test you by making you hungry. The test is God making them hunger. Now, why would God do such a thing? I mean, at at face value, seems almost cruel. But here's what God's doing in making them hunger. God is helping them realize who they really are. Like, actually, how hungry and thirsty and vulnerable and dependent... They really are. And see, this is why I say desert is the great teacher. It teaches us that we, in and of ourselves, are really pretty helpless and dependent. But it's also the place that teaches us that God is the great provider. I mean, God provides a banquet of food in the desert, and this banquet is real food from God's hand. Look at verse 4 of chapter 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven. Bread from my hand. And I'll do this for you. The people are to go out each day. They're to gather just enough for the day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. God not only provides manna, but also look at verse 12. He said, I have heard the grumbling and complaining of Israel. Tell them at twilight, I will give them meat. And in the morning, they will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Now, when I read verse 4, I see that the text is telling me that the test is not in the actual hungering. The text is actually packaged in God's provision in the midst of the hungering. And what's God's provision? We'll also look at verse 15. What does he provide? It says, when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? They don't even know what it is that God provides. What is it? What is this stuff? In fact, that's what they call it. They call it, what is it? Manna in Hebrew basically means what you call it. That's what they ended up calling it. Because they don't know what it is. And when you don't know what something is, but you have to eat what you don't know what it is, you have to trust God, Right? And then look at verses 16 and 19. You see him? Moses actually said, it is the bread of the Lord that he has given to you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person. That is in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one had gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone who gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until the next day. Here's the test. 
God's going to give them just enough for each day. This is called daily bread. Which means God is saying, I'm not going to provide enough for even the next week or for the next year or to give you five years of security. I'm going to provide just enough for each day. And every day, you're going to have to trust me. Trust me. In fact, God even throws another wrinkle into this test. You look at verse 5. You look at verse 22. God says, I'm a Sabbath-keeping God. And he says, because I'm a Sabbath-keeping God, he says, I want you to be a Sabbath-keeping people. And because I'm a Sabbath person, there's no work on Sabbath. So what I want you to do is collect enough for two days. And again, in that little thing is a test. You're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to trust me enough to rest on the seventh day because I rest on the seventh day and I want you to rest on the Sabbath day. So really, in following God's instruction of Sabbath, what it requires is trust. And the trust requires obedience. The obedience requires trust. The trust requires obedience. Will you trust me? And I want to tell you something right now. If you want to know God's love language, and what I mean by love language, love language is the way in which people give and receive love, and everybody kind of has a love language. This really helped my marriage uh, when, when we understood this. Because the way I give and receive love is much different than the way Libby gives, gives and receives love. And it ha- has helped me with my kids. The way they give and receive love is a lot different than I give and receive love. And God has a love language. What is it? obedience. It's not sing to me. It's not pray to me. It's not have ecstatic experience with me. It's not performing great feats in my name. God's love language is obedience. Who has Matthew 7, 21 through 23? I hope that person's not sleeping right now. Oh, it's you, Perry. (laughs) All these iPhones these days. I'm I'm always thinking you guys are texting your friends or something. Who's Jesus in the end going to say, I knew you, and you knew me? The one who does the will of my Father. Jesus said, if you love me, you're going to obey me. And so every day for them to experience God's provision, they had to trust and obey God. And I love how, 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 how the text that we read in in Deuteronomy says, um, I, I led you in these places for 40 years in order to humble you and to test you so that I could know what was in your heart. And I read that and I think, wait a second, 
why does God need to know what's in my heart? Why does he need to know what's in their heart? Doesn't God just automatically know what's in our heart? Well, this is that special word in Hebrew for to know, which is yada. It's not that factual knowing. God factually knows what's in our heart, but it's this experiential knowing. And so God, what he's saying is, is I want to know by experience what is in your heart. And it's the experience of what? It's the experience of God's people trusting him, obeying him, and following him. And God says, I want to know that. I want to experience that. Just like, I don't want you to just factually know about me. I don't want you to have just doctrines of who I am or even the power of my hand. I want you to experience my hand as you take food from my hand. That's the desert. That's why God says, I had, I had to make you hungry. I had to make you hungry to show you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from my mouth. In other words, I had to take all your honey away. All the sweet things of Egypt. I had to take it away to show you real honey. The honey of my word. And I know this through experience. I know this from the text. Only the desert can teach us us this. The desert is the place where God starves us. He starves us of all things Egypt. Well, we're starved of our appetites for Egypt. We're starved of our addictions. We're starved of our selfish self. We're starved of things that in the end don't really matter or don't last, that keep us from the one for whom we've been made. Egypt has to get starved out of Israel. It has to get starved out of me. It has to get starved out of you. I know my appetites. My appetites are like a monster in a cage. And that monster in his cage is right in here. And I know when that monster gets fed, and I feed it, and I feed it a little bit more, that that monster comes to life. But when that monster gets starved, and I starve him, and I starve him, and I starve him, He goes away and he falls asleep. See, desert is the place where we have nothing. It's the place where we lack nothing. And when you look at Israel's experience, and we're going to see this in the next couple of weeks, the deeper they go into the desert, the more intense is their experience of God to the point where every day man is raining down from heaven. They're drinking water out of rocks. Uh, they're experiencing God's shade. They don't have to worry about tomorrow because God tells them when it's time to move. God even tells them when it's time to eat. And I'm going to tell you the irony of the desert. As hard as it is, as terrible as it is, it's paradise. 
And I'd like to think right now that some of you know exactly what I'm talking about as you think about your deserts and, and when life was so difficult. But yet in that difficulty, you just know how close God was to you and your experience of him was so intense. Listen to Jesus. Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. What's he describing? He's describing someone who's in the desert. And they're the ones who get to experience the kingdom. They're the ones who are comforted. They're the ones who are satisfied. They're the ones who see God. The desert. I want to end with two questions and a challenge. First question, do you know the shepherd? Can your heart really say Psalm 23 today? And do you trust the shepherd to the point you're willing to follow the shepherd? Because I'm going to tell you where the shepherd's going to lead us. He's going to lead us in the desert. Second question, what's your honey today? Where do you go to find sweetness? What do you run to to be satisfied? Be honest. Jesus said, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread from heaven. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Here's my challenge. You have the guts to pray. Savior, shepherd, lead me. Drive me if you have to into the desert. Can you pray that prayer? We need desert. Not because it saves us. Israel's already experienced the grace of God. God's already got him out of Egypt. We need desert so we can become like him, so we can know him, so we can find him, so we can become like him. Let's pray. And God, I just know how much my own heart needs this message, and I don't know where we are today. I don't know if we're so full from Thanksgiving or hung over from football games or whatever, God, but wake us up out of our slumber, I pray. Not only show us, God, the value of desert, it's more than that. We're not capable, God, of really going to the desert unless you lead us to the desert and for people like me, unless you drive us there. We just pray for desert, Lord, in our lives. Set us free. Set us free. Let us be a free people in Jesus' name.